Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody. I am the aforementioned Sal from the Commander Salamander, along with my ever-genial co-host, Eagle One of Eagle Speak. And welcome back to another live edition after a couple of best ofs. And for those that are joining us live, uh, why don't you go ahead and scroll down to the bottom of the show page if you haven't already. The chat room is there for those that suffer a little bit from stage fright. Um, As you probably saw in the lead-up to today's show, this is a free-form episode where Eagle One and I will just pontificate about this, that, and the other thing. But if there are some questions you wanted to address to us, or perhaps a topic you would just like for us to uh, bounce around a bit, if you don't want to call in, which if you're live, obviously if you're like most people and get this from the archive, this number won't do you any good. But you can reach the uh, switchboard for the show page, area code 347 347-308-8397, and we'll go ahead and uh, bring you into the conversation. But you can also just roll those questions and observations into the chat room as well, because we'll both be there during the course of this show as we move along. So let's get on with the show, and uh, good afternoon, Eagle One. Hey, Sal, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing quite fine, and um just kind of kick things off today, uh, if for no other reason than to laugh at the rest of the nation as they chipped and scraped their way through uh, uh, last week's winter storm. Um, as those that follow me, especially on, on Twitter, uh, though I did post uh, a couple of things about it last week, uh, I was in San Diego for the U.S. Naval Institute and AFSEA's West 2014 conference, And uh, it's been a few years since I've had a chance to do something like that. Um, But it was kind of interesting. And one of the things uh, that I took away from it uh, early on, and we touched on it a couple times here in this show, mostly self-referential to myself, but uh, imagine that. The... A little bit of advice, one of the first panels was General Allen and Admiral Stavridis and uh, former um, Secretary Danzig was the moderator of the panel. And the, the subject was ostensibly on Afghanistan. Maybe we'll, we'll wander into that quite much sometime during the show. Maybe not. But um, really, it would be hard for us to find a better panel than those two individuals. And, and Secretary Danzig, unfortunately for me at least, because I wanted to get to the questions, he, he kind of went off into a rabbit hole and did kind of a long bio on both individuals, uh, which I think most people in the audience knew. But he started off asking about something that I didn't expect. Um, he asked them about what, as they look back on their you know, careers through general officer and flag officer, what were some things they both took away from the Naval Academy that helped them the most in their career? And besides the, the chuckle that people got about time management comment, the one serious observation they had before they got on to the actual meat of the panel, um, I did not expect. But the more I thought about it, and I, as I've mentioned before, you know, something I, I had clued into maybe a little earlier in my, my career, was the, the power and the utility of a network. 
And I don't think they were talking so much about sometimes when people think networking, it's uh, being an obsequious schmooze uh, trying to toddle along behind your mentor and get a good fit rep. But that's not really what they're talking about. What they're talking about was uh, the development of a peer network. And obviously, um, they were well before the Internet era, which I think can, can help things out. And besides personality issues, um, I think you know technology has really enabled people, if they wish, and it doesn't take a Naval Academy to do that, but to really develop a strong peer network. And it's something that perhaps we don't talk enough about are the ways that we do it, because I know it's done a lot in the civilian world. You know, what what have you seen, Eagle One? You've got about a, a decade-plus more experience uh, in this little subculture as ours. How have you seen peer networks uh, develop and change over the years? And uh, what do you think are some of the, the positive aspects or the right way to do uh, peer networking? And what are some of the... Um, the shortfalls and the danger points you think people, uh, junior officers who are getting into it and trying to find out the way to do it right, that they may want to avoid? Well, uh, back at the dawn of time when I first joined the Navy, the academy guys had a huge advantage in that they uh, seemed to know each other in ways that those of us who didn't attend the academy uh, didn't know each other. You knew, they knew, for example, that if they didn't know the person personally from the academy, they knew what uh, they knew somebody who knew him. You know, the six degree separation sort of thing, only much smaller. They knew what what uh, company he'd been in. And they knew people in that company. That you know, you had a general reputation um, that helped a lot. For them to know each other, you know, we, the ROTC types, and some of us went to uh, to Duke, some of us went to uh, Carolina, some of us went to Vanderbilt, some of us went to Texas A&M or Prairie View A&M or or Cal or Stanford or someplace. We didn't know each other then, and so the reputation you had uh, acquired was that on the first ship or first squadron you were in, and not necessarily one that. Uh, somebody on on uh, another squad or another ship would, would know you. <clears throat> I think that the the electronic, and then again, you know, there were the other net possibility for network was writing for proceedings where you could you could get your name out as somebody who was a thinker about naval things. But uh, in those days, it seemed to me there was an awful risk that you were you were really exposing yourself uh, if you didn't have a good idea what you were talking about. Um, I think that the electronic stuff with the blogs, the uh, various uh, group blogs that have popped up, the, uh, uh, the you know, the, your blog, my blog, the mill blogs generally, uh, things like Sailor Bob and the uh, Air Warriors uh, uh, rooms, you know, they all help people communicate about things that they've learned from that first USS first ship, USS or first squadron. And uh, I think that communication at that level is really good. There are a lot of shared concepts that we didn't have before. You couldn't really share lessons learned very well across platforms in those days. Uh, with the advent of things like uh, Facebook and uh, Twitter and uh, LinkedIn, uh, these possibilities grow even more. But as you uh, have noted, the danger is that you become a uh, – a, you know, a link gatherer. You know, I'm not sure I want really want uh, uh, Admiral Stavridis to be reading everything I write all the time, uh, and I certainly don't want to be pushing myself on him. That that seems to me to be a, a, a kind of a big danger. So, somewhere between the Ned Ryerson, you know, from Groundhog Day, uh, to to being a a thoughtful uh, blogger at the Naval Institute or at, uh, on your own blog, I think there's a balance there that has to be reached. And I think that for junior officers now, there's probably more uh, space in which to operate and communicate with each other than there has been ever before. And, and I think that's a good thing. And I think also the lead senior leadership has recognized that and reaches down into a lot of those, those uh, sites and gets ideas and thoughts and communicates um, with those junior officers. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think... You're, you're spot on, and the um, you know there are things um, you know you mentioned some of the group blogs, some of the the self-generated and unofficial uh, gatherings and um, conferences people put together, and some other you know projects that are actually being people are doing out of their own pocket in their own time. One of which we'll we'll talk about later on in the show. But 
Uh, we, we got a caller I want to bring into the conversation, kind of a regular here on Midrats. I think I kind of shamed him into calling in for us. Uh, BJ Armstrong. BJ, good afternoon. Welcome to Midrats. Good afternoon, guys. Thanks for having me. Hey, great. You um, Over in the chat room, you, you, you brought up, uh, if this isn't what you wanted to talk about, the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum in, in SimSec. Uh, for those that aren't familiar with them or haven't you know, made the effort to, to, to link through to the few times that we've, we've had them here on guest or things like that, what are those organizations? How, how are they run? And how, how might they be a little bit different in the marketplace of ideas when it comes to maritime issues that uh, might get people's interest? And how does that kind of tie in to uh, getting smart people together to bounce ideas off of each other? Yeah, so your your uh, whole point, the starting point of the conversation about networking, immediately made me think of these these two groups that I'm kind of tangentially involved with. Um, the first one being SimSec, which is the the center for what is it, center for international maritime security, which is which is really the brainchild of a, a group of lieutenants in a lieutenant junior grade. Um, the idea being, hey out here in the fleet or out in around the world, we have all these junior officers or junior academics who have ideas but don't necessarily have the ability to go to the big think tanks and get their ideas published or even considered. Um, so they created this organization, Scott Cheney Peters and, and Matt Hipple and a couple other folks, to get their ideas out, basically. And they, they launched their next war blog and have started to put together uh, – events where they gather people to talk about maritime affairs. Uh, and it, it's a really interesting group because you bring in all kinds of different people, whether it's junior officers who are stuck in a staff job in the Pentagon through to retired civil servants who have been doing this for 30 or 40 years who want to show up at a happy hour in D.C. and, and give some wisdom and provide some guidance. Um, so that, that's one example. And the other example, and with SimSec, I've had the privilege to go to some of their social events, their happy hours, and, uh, and talk with the folks who write on the blog and, and help them with some of their writing sometimes. And then the other organization is the Defense Entrepreneur Forum, DEF, which had a similar kind of starting point, was the, the brainchild of a group of JOs who had these ideas about how to make uh, military service better, how to do things more efficiently. Uh, the deaf folks tend to focus a little bit more on, on technological solutions, I think. Um, but they put together a conference that was held uh, last fall, uh, right in the middle of the government shutdown, actually. And so you ended up with these about 120 JOs, folks from industry, guys from Silicon Valley, who all paid their own way in the middle of a government shutdown to fly to Chicago to meet with each other and compare notes on ways that they wanted to improve their services. And you had, you know, across the board, you had Navy guys there, Marines there, soldiers there, airmen there. Um, and it was a really interesting group of people to gather together who a lot of times had talked to each other online or on, you know, Facebook groups and, and exchanging blog posts and things like that. But the conference gave them the opportunity to meet face-to-face -face and eye-to-eye. Uh, and I was privileged to be invited to come speak to the group and, and give my gun doctor talk about William Sims and his innovations and some lessons to learn from him. But seeing all those people there just to learn from each other, just to make those connections, that network idea, that ended up being the real success of the whole event. You know, you get a conference like that together and maybe you think some great solution to some problem will come out of it. I think everyone left that weekend thinking, wow, all these really incredible people that I just met, now I know who to go to when I have another idea later on. That was almost as much the strength as any physical thing that came out of it. Eagle One? Yeah, uh, BJ, I, since uh, I kind of advertise this thing, I sort of talking about the, uh, the uh, USNI conference in um, 2014 West. Um, <coughs> Is there a I mean, is there a huge difference between what you, the Naval Institute is trying to do with those conferences and what something uh, put together by these GAOs like this uh, Defense uh, Entrepreneurs Forum? Are, are they are they that different, or are they uh, pretty much along the same idea? We've got to talk about 
uh, where we're going, how we're going to get there, and what it's going to look like when we're done. Is that are they similar? Are they more similar or more dis- unlike? I, I think that in your in your you know broad description there, they do sound similar. But and this is just you know my two cents, BJ's opinion, you know not guy in uniforms opinion, just BJ the guy on the phone's opinion. Um, I think they're completely different things. Uh, I've I've been I've actually never been to West, but I went to Joint Warfighter a number of times um, in Virginia Beach, and I've been to a number of the USNI events. And they're really, they're really good. You learn a lot out of them. But for the most part, they're a dog and pony show. They're an opportunity for the four stars and the senior civilians in the Pentagon to get out of the Pentagon and come give their talk. You know, that, it was, that their whole team helped them prep and that they built their slides for, and, and they're going to tell you the way things are today and how we're going to solve our problems, which is good. We need to know that stuff. We need to know what the, what the senior officers are thinking, and we need to know why they're doing the things they're doing. But events like the Defense Entrepreneur Forum are not about big-ticket names. They're not about famous people. They're not about lots of, you know, lots of stars on your shoulder boards. They're more about people just having ideas and getting to know each other. I mean, a great example is at DEF, no uniforms allowed. It's business casual. And so everyone from the two-star general that was there down to the midshipman that was there played the same and had the same name tag and therefore could just talk to each other. It's not really what you get at these big, whether it's, whether it's West or it's Sea Air Space that's coming up or it's one of these other big conventions. It's not really what you get at those. At those, you're there to listen to the speech, hear what the guy has to say, there's not really that much give and take. Yeah, there's a Q&A, but it's not really a conversation. Um, so I think there's a significant difference. And I think they're designed to be different. And that's, that's fine. We need both. But, to, for example, the first uh, Death X, you know, so like TED. TED has their TEDxs, which are the TED-inspired events. And Death is having the same thing now. And so Death X, the very first one, is going to be here in Annapolis uh, two weekends from now on Saturday the 1st. And it's going to be a one-day event instead of a you know three-day weekend like we had with the first one in Chicago. It's just going to be one day, but it's a, once again an opportunity for people to come together and talk. And no uniforms, nobody pulling rank. There's no bad ideas. There's just sharing and trying to learn from each other and make things better. Yeah, it's one of the interesting things you you brought up there about the the no uniforms, and I think a perfect example of that was uh, you know one thing we saw in San Diego without going into the the things we were talking about, but uh, we were at an evening event, and um, I had uh, an individual I know grab me by the ear and say, hey, come over, you need to go talk to Admiral Fogo. So went over to talk to Admiral Fogo. We're all in civvies, talking to him, great. Within a couple minutes, it was. Admiral Fogo, myself, a Coast Guard JO reservist, two Navy JOs and a Navy uh, Lieutenant Commander just chatting away all good. Fast forward next morning, uh, of course, he's in uniform, and I watched him come in. And you know how these conferences already have individual tables, and it was the morning event. He sat at a table by himself. Nobody sat next to him except for a, uh, a one-star that came over later. It was like the guy was the plague. So we had a great conversation with a good mix of people um, with them, with no uniform, social setting, was able to really got some really great um, Chatham House Rules conversation going on there. Um, but once you put on the uniform, it, there, it does completely change the dynamic. And I wish I could remember the individuals, um, but one of them uh, the, at the Chicago event, he actually brought up, you know, here he was, he just stumbled into a conversation, you know, had no idea who the guy he was talking with and found out what they, when he came out the other end of the rabbit hole, he was talking to some uh, Air Force general officer. And uh, it, uh, and you, you have to know for the, for the senior officers who people start lying to them after they, they make 06, if not earlier, that it's kind of refreshing to them to, to go dress in mufti and uh, wander into the village, so to speak, with his, the ears open. I, I know uh, Admiral Fogo in, in enjoyed that opportunity. And I, here's a question for you, BJ. Is, um, 
because these are kind of volunteer events to a certain extent, and I guess initially um, they're self-selecting and that you only have certain types of personalities there, um, have, have you had talks with anybody who's really trying to get a couple of attendees to show up who initially say, no, 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 I'm not interested for a variety of reasons? Uh, the reason why I ask is you can always have um, a little bit of a bias into perceptions when you have self-selecting networking groups. Um, or do you actually see that as an advantage, vice a disadvantage, so you're not wasting time talking to somebody who already has their walls up when they walk through the door? Well, I, I think that's a good point. I mean, the deaf organization, I, I think, is a good one. From what I've seen, um, you know, as an example, they, they do tend to be technologically focused. You know, the, the examples of successful entrepreneurs and the folks who came in to talk included a lot of Silicon Valley talk. And a lot of the ideas of the ways we're going to solve some of these issues that were brought up seemed to involve designing an app for it so that people could share information more easily and that kind of thing. But, but there, were, there always seemed to be an app involved. Um, and so, yeah, you, obviously you had a self-selected group that were interested in that kind of thing uh, that showed up. So I do think that there's, there's some validity in what you say. The flip side of that coin is I think that everyone who, who went to the first event in Chicago and left, I would be willing to bet that because I did and I know other people did, everyone went home and sent emails or called two or three friends and said, wow, you really got to come do this next time. Because I think you would be, bring a really interesting take on X or on Y or you'd be different about Z. Um, and I think that's, that network is just starting, and that's one of the things about networks, right? They grow over time. And so that example of that deaf network is just kind of starting, and it's growing. You know, this event here in Annapolis in two weeks, which there's still seats open for. So, uh, you know, just Google Defense Entrepreneur Forum, and you can, you can find the registration stuff. Or uh, check out my post at War on the Rocks from this past week about it, and you can register to come. Um, that network is just going to grow. Now, hopefully, being in Annapolis a little bit closer to D.C. as opposed to Chicago, a few more of the Beltway folks might try to escape, come out to Annapolis for a nice Saturday afternoon, um, and, and therefore the network spreads again. And I think that's the kind of thing that will just happen by word of mouth. Yes, it, it's a self-selecting group. You know, There are going to be those folks who are only worried about passing the next tactics quiz. And going to deaf is not going to help them do that, right? If you're only studying your NATOPS, you don't need to go to deaf because we're not going to talk about NATOPS at deaf. So there, there are going to be those guys that don't want to come, and that's absolutely fine too. You know, we need all types in the military. Yeah, I thought one of the interesting uh, discussions, or actually it was a speech that uh, – or Commander of Pacific Fleet, um, Admiral Harris talked about uh, as he as he was going through his uh, his uh, speech. He, he kept shifting the modality with which he was presenting the speech. I don't know if you saw it or it's available on YouTube at the uh, USNI uh, conference um, uh, link. But he uh, he started out with his uh, optical device wearing like glasses where he could read his speech on this uh, on this optical device sort of like a heads-up display as he said on his aircraft and then went down to an iPad and then went down to a piece of paper and finally just did it ad hoc and it, it points out one of the things about having uh, some adults in the room if, if you will not to make any reference to, to the deaf people because I think they're outstanding young men but and women but um, he and Admiral Harris had an overview of how this stuff you know has to be you can't always rely on the app. You can't always rely, just as you know, if you're navigating a, a helicopter or a ship, you can't always rely on there being some computer modules that can help you out. Every now and then, you're gonna, if something's going to go horribly wrong, you're going to dig to dig out that section and uh, and uh, uh, go back to the old-fashioned way of doing things. So you better have your, your nautical almanac and all that stuff available. And I think that, that Admiral Harris's comment was it had to be uh, resilient, reliable, secure, and affordable. And, and that's one of those questions I would have about the uh, about the uh, these these entrepreneurial groups who, who would like to have an app for everything. Is, is is there someone saying, well, it's yeah, this is a great idea, but we also need to have, be a little a little slow in engaging this? 
I, I think that that's, as I said, in the Chicago event, we there were, it wasn't just JOs. You know, we had a two-star general there from the Marine Corps. We had a, a number of senior officers there, as well as, you know, senior industry folks. So there was a lot of sanity in the room as well, um, the kind of thing you're talking about. The other thing is I think that people realize that there are certain things that the solution set of building an app will work better for than other things. A great example is one of the guys who was at, uh, at the Chicago event, Daryl Difty, designed an app called the uh, Emotional Vitality Assistant. And the whole idea of it basically is you know, to address military suicide and depression, and, and it's an app that helps with information about that, that sort of challenge. Um, and he's, he's launched the app. It's had a huge success. He's going to give a talk here at the Annapolis event all about his experience in between Chicago and now with launching uh, the product and, and seeing how successful it was and tweaking it and that kind of thing. Now, that information sharing type solution works pretty well for that problem. And that's the key is finding the right problems and matching them up with the right solutions to work. And so I think that's part of what the whole deaf process is. That's why the network matters because you may not realize what the road bump's going to be for you and your idea. You know, you, you may not have that knowledge. You have to study. You have to learn about, you know, other parts of the military system that are going to get in the way of your solution, the bureaucracy, the acquisitions programs, things like that. And that's why having a, a large network like that with all that different expertise in it, well, that matters. You know, SIMSEC is a, is a similar kind of, situation, but on more of a strategic or operational level. You know, they had a really incredible past week of blog posts at the Next War blog on air-sea battle. And some just really brilliant writing about how to think about air-sea battle, the whole debate over strategy versus operational concept, that kind of thing. And so they similar idea in that lots of people coming with different experiences and different visions putting their ideas out there that all help us learn from each other. I mean, in reality, these are the founding ideas of the Naval Institute. If you're going back to 1873, you know, it, this is not necessarily new. This has happened throughout naval history. Um, it's just that these are our 21st century examples of the network. And, VJ, um, be careful. We'll keep you on for the full hour. And I don't know whether you had a question you wanted to ask, but we, we dragged you down a rabbit hole. But I want to drag you a little further into the rabbit hole, if, if you don't mind. Because uh, during one of the uh, panels uh, that I was sitting in on, it had the um, uh, some of the crew members from the USS Benfold. By the way, they're, they're outgoing. Uh, Skipper was there. XO was there. Um, sat across the way and, and made uh, cutesy faces with Commander Salazar from, from Crick. Uh, great panel for those that haven't seen the video yet. Uh, take some time to go see it. Talk a little bit about uh, uh, the Athena project as well that maybe we'll touch on later. But behind me, and I forget his name, U.S. Coast Guard captain who was there the whole time, uh, he brought up a very good point, and we kind of pulled the thread later on a one-on-one. -on -one. And one of his concern is, uh, with what's do, being done unofficially um, is, is fine and good and probably has enough inertia on its own because people have personal ownership of it. But he said that in the question he asked for the panel that really wasn't sufficiently answered is what's going on with the Athena project and some things that they, uh, the officers and, and sailors uh, from the Benfold did out of their own pocket because the Navy wouldn't fund it, incidentally, um, is there's a danger of having some great work and great things done, but it quickly devolves into uh, personality-based points of innovation, which when the personality, i.e. the few individuals, move on, that it evaporates in front of them. And his frustration was, is in the Coast Guard, they've, they've tried to institutionalize in it, where he said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, we have the structure in, in place for what they've done with, on the Benfold and with the Athena project, but we don't have the innovative minds. Whereas on the Navy, you have the innovative minds, you've got the, 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 the right people in place, 
uh, but there's no infrastructure, official infrastructure there to keep it going should the personalities move on. And he was going to work on a sidebar to, to have a discussion about what the Coast Guard could, could look at finding the right personalities. But his warning was, yeah, Navy, you got some great stuff going, but uh, you just have a personality-based points of innovation. Have you, have you seen other people have that concern um, about there really is no official Navy structure there? Or my cynic is if the Navy gets hold of it and makes a nameplate in office and a you know, three-number and two-letter encode out of it, it's just going to uh, get blawed out and not really be there. Is this something that's best uh, being churned from the outside in, or do you think there's a chance to maybe institutionalize this like the Coast Guard has tried to do? Okay, so I'll, I'll say this will be my last set of comments. I'll let you guys get back to the show. But um, I think there's a valid concern there, uh, twofold. The first one is kind of like you were saying about the concern about big Navy taking control of innovation. One of the concerns that I've heard expressed about the CRIC is this whole idea that, okay, the CNO is going to set up this innovation group. You know what that allows? It allows for COs and XOs throughout the fleet to say, no, you're not in the CRIC. Focus on the ship here. We're not doing innovation. Once you get in the CRIC, you can go do innovation. You know, it creates a stovepipe, potentially. Does that mean that's how it's going to work? Not necessarily, but it's certainly a risk that's worth considering. You know, as soon as somebody blesses something and it becomes an official program, then the bureaucracy can start to maneuver around it. You know, the organization can start to maneuver. So it's definitely something to think about. The personality part of it, I think that's just reality. I don't think there's a way to keep that out of the process. Um, you know, the, the innovation example that, I commonly use from history is William Sims and the continuous aim fire uh, gunnery revolution at the turn of the last century. Well, if Sims himself hadn't met Percy Scott on China Station, developed his ideas about continuous aim fire, and gotten President Roosevelt to appoint him, basically, as the inspector of target practice, and then held the inspector of target practice job for six and a half years, and think about how that having the same set of orders for six and a half years and being in charge of something in the Navy. That would be a beautiful thing. You can make thing. a difference. You can, yeah. Six and a half years, you can start to move a culture. You know, in, in 18 months, you can't start to move a culture, and that's part of the challenge. Um, was he and his personality a part of the improvement in gunnery in the U.S. Navy right before World War One? Absolutely it is. There's no way around it. William Sims' personality is, is completely and intrinsically linked to that development in the Navy. Um, so, as I said, I don't think you can get around that. The trick is, you know, having leaders who are out there who recognize that and, and maybe adjust the rules or bend the rules a little bit to keep the right personality in the right place at the right time. Um, we don't have a lot of flexibility in the bureaucracy in the Navy anymore. Uh, we're very... Uh, focused and very, you know, checklist-driven and career milestones, and you got to get your wickets, and you know, it's a very engineering way of looking at running a career. Um, you know, maybe we could shift back away from that. It hasn't always been that way in the U.S. Navy. To go back to the interwar years, it wasn't necessarily the same way. Um, but an ability to shift people and where they go on orders and get the right people in the right job, a little bit more talent management can certainly go a long way. I yeah, think that'll um, be it for me, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, BJ, thanks for calling in. And um, for those that haven't been following, uh, if, you, if you just haven't gotten enough Mahan, uh, uh, BJ, uh, make sure you grab hold of his, his book. How long has it been out in Kindle, or has it been out in Kindle from the start? Uh, it's, it's Well, about two weeks after the paperback was released. So since the end of June, it's been out in the ebook format. So both in the paperback and in the ebook, You can find it at Barnes & Noble or Amazon or at the USNI bookstore. Yeah, 21st Century Mahan, uh, that, that's BJ's book. And BJ also has been doing a lot of talking, and you heard a little bit of it here, Sims. Uh, matter of fact, I got his book in my library. I might be pulling out this year and re-reading to stay ahead of the, uh, the power curve. But, uh, you know, one thing before I let you go, uh, BJ, 
uh, one thing you're doing, everything uh, uh, a good thing for is everybody's looking for the latest, newest, sexy Google Glass things. But from as a naval professional, a lot of times you can see further forward by going back a little bit and seeing what some big minds are doing, and you helped a lot with that conversation. So I really appreciated it. Thanks so much, guys. I'll look forward to the rest of the show. You got it. Hey, and uh, speaking of the rest of the show, one thing that I, I brought up there and I wanted to bring up, and we, we talked a little bit about innovation. And in the – it was, let's see, you had a Marine Corps up on the panel about the uh, Athena project. And if anybody's interested about it, you can go to athenanavy.wordpress.com. Here, I'll tell you what, if you're in the chat room, I'll go and put it up there. But you can just Google – uh, Athena Project in Navy, and you can get to work, what you're interested in. But they had some JOs, and um, they also had some enlisted folks from the Benfold up there. They had a um, Marine Corps captain from Crick. And one thing that came up, they had the um, – uh, he was WEPS or a navigator. I think he was a navigator for the Benfold came up. Talk about a screaming flash of brilliance. It was good hearing a lot of the JOs looking at what – when we were pups, Eagle One, that, that every, we always did, but we don't quite do as much as we used to, is they're thinking ahead about, um, okay, we've lost the electromagnetic spectrum. How do we still put uh, warheads on foreheads? And that was actually a quote from the panel, which is good to hear. Um, how do we do that? With, with uh, you know, Assume that your GPS is down. You know, how do you do that? And a real neat idea he came up with um, that – is so blindingly straightforward. It's amazing. You remember as a JO taking out that sextant and you know feeling all excited because you've got within a few miles of your fix. That's, you know if you're really good at it, you can do that. If you don't do it too often, you know if you get within 10 miles, that's enough to get you home, but not enough to to put a position and get your weapons downrange where they need to be. But there are some apps uh, that are available that. Uh, remember, I have one on my phone that can look at the sky and use a camera on your smartphone to get constellations lined up and can do all that tedious work from celestial navigation and get you down to a very, very accurate position. And they actually have started talking with some developers how to tweak it so you could actually, using that type of iPhone software, Pop your visual up there. Nobody can jam um, Polaris and Betelgeuse and you know, the lower limb of the moon. Uh, it's amazing the accuracy you can get enough that you can feed a position into your your targeting software and get something you can throw a T-LAM downrange at. But what was interesting at the end, he said, but we turned it over to the Navy and it's not going anywhere. That's, he didn't say that, but that's basically the impression that we got. And I think that goes into you know one thing that the Coast Guard captain was, was warning us about. If we can have these small little uh, ideas and innovations, but do we have and are we trying to develop a system that can say, holy crap, this is a great thing. Um, this doesn't cost too much to do. And we can get this rolled out uh, pretty darn fast. I got the impression that now that they've tried to have something official done, that it's absolutely going anywhere. Tell me where that's not a good idea and why that's not a priority, Eagle One, because you can almost see the look on his face, um, the, the disappointment. And uh, going into the uh, J.O. panel they had later, it's that disappointment where we lose a lot of our real smart people. Yeah, it is where we lose a lot of our really smart people. And, you know, I don't know how much of it is uh, not invented here or how much of it is that we give a lot of talk about having flexible, uh, I think uh, Secretary, uh, Acting Secretary Fox talked about having flexible portfolios as far as our, our ships. And I know a lot of other discussion there was about how, uh, you know, once again, we're kind of talking pl- uh, uh, payloads and not platforms for a lot of the future ships, but 
simple ideas like that, which would provide a lot of flexibility. I mean, uh, once again, I'll go back to the, the training I had. I don't know how it is for, for uh, I think it's for aviators, pretty similar. I mean, we always had a checklist. The checklist was, uh, you know, basically you always worried about the worst thing that could happen. A wing falls off, you lose your rudder, uh, you know, your main power plant blows up or something. And you had, you know, you had to, you had to work through that sort of thing. And um, I don't think that, that with the modern uh, technology we have, a lot of times we don't, I'm not sure how much we practice. What happens if everything goes blank? You know, what happens if, if not only uh, does the, you, uh, you lose your, your satellite navigation system, but what happens when it's cloudy, you know, and you can't hold your uh, cell phone up to take pictures of the stars? You know, that's one of the things, and sorry to interrupt you, but I just wanted, just wanted to emphasize this point that you've brought up. And that's another thing. You know, the networking thing came up a few times. Here's another thing that came up, and I'll start with uh, you know Christine Fox. What a great talk. If, if people haven't followed the link to that video, they need to watch her. Um, but one thing that she came up, and you could see a little glint in her eye, um, and she said, you cannot, I'm, I'm reading from my notes, uh, you cannot assume a permissive environment that we have enjoyed in the last few decades. And that's a, that I believe is exactly the point that you were making there, Eagle One, is the fact that you can't assume you're going to have your GPS. You can't assume you can have, you have your IP bandwidth through your satellite. You, heck, your EHF antenna might not even uh, be able to receive anything. How do you operate? And not just float around in the water and uh, in, in circles, but how do you, like the, the J.O. from the Benfold said, you know, how do you put hot metal on target in, in, spite of, in spite of the fact that you do not have that permissive environment that we've gotten way too comfortable with? Yeah, that's, a, I, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm from an old, uh, uh, I, I, on the couple of ships that I served on, we had some technology. Uh, back in the old days, we used to transfer ammunition ship to ship using um, metal uh, crates sort of to transfer this stuff. And, and the question was whether you use wire or this, we, uh, somebody innovated a new technique of, we had chain in between the wires, a lot more flexible, easier for the, for the uh, bosun mates to handle to get it on the transfer ship onto the hook and send it across to the destroyer or whoever. You know, not an approved idea, but it was very flexible and it should have been an approved idea. And I think maybe, maybe eventually they did approve it, I have no idea. Um, but on the destroyer I was on, if we're doing gunfire support, uh, the navigator, you can take visual bearings, and, and, and at least you know within the range of the naval gun, you can take visual bearings on things, and you're pretty darn accurate. You can take uh, navigational fixes, and you're going to be pretty darn accurate. The question is, as we've increased the precision of the equipment, of the weapons we're using, uh, can it take, can they take imprecise information, is that good enough or are we so worried about uh, collateral damage that we're afraid to throw uh, two or three warheads at something where it might take one if we had uh, the best of all possible information for fear that out of those two or three, you know, some school bus may get blown up full of, full of nuns on their way to church. You know, I don't know the answer to that. At some point, uh, you've got to go back to the old school stuff and you've got to go back to kind of old school thinking. We didn't seem to mind World War II blowing the heck out of uh, civilian population to try and get the uh, Messerschmitt factory in the middle of a city, but maybe these are kinder, gentler times. Yeah, I think um, below the surface of, uh, of all people, but especially this nation, I think uh, you scratch too far and there's the same group of people that slaughtered 100,000 other countrymen in the Civil War. We can be kind of brutal. Uh, who knows what it would take, uh, but um, you know, maybe we'll reach that point again. I really don't know. Another thing that Christina Fox brought up that kind of put <laughs> made me put my cell phone report as um, she has seen the QDR. She can't talk about it in detail, but she did give us a couple little nuggets to ponder about it. Uh, and one thing that she's emphasizing that when people get the QDR this time, uh, there's no peace dividend in the offering. Uh, now, a couple people perked up because, again, it's, a, it's an industry conference more or less. Um, you know, AFCA is industry, even though U.S. and I uh, co-host it. So there's money involved. But um, came back and also let people know that 
there are significant budget issues going on. So I don't think that means there's more money is going to come up. You know, she said it'd be great to be able to get more money. We need it. She said we needed a BRAC, but there's no appetite in Congress to do it. Um, she brought up again the present compensation structure that was developed since 9/11 is simply unsustainable, and is pulling money out of readiness and modernization in order to sustain it. Of course, other people had said, well, then you need to get more money. But uh, she said there's no appetite to fix that either. And she said in spite of the QDR and in spite there's no peace dividend, but the U.S. military is going to get smaller in the, net, in the next five years because regardless of what we think our strategy wants to be, um, in regards to what academically people think that you develop a strategy and you build a military to uh, meet that strategy, the reality is you're going to have to have a budget. And there's a close interlink between budget and strategy. And you have to have a strategy that can be executed within the budget that you're willing to spend. And that made a few people uncomfortable, but I think she's exactly right. Then she also had a little warning here that you know, there's a lot of temptation um, for people who want to withdraw um, from being engaged overseas. That they don't want to pivot to the Pacific. They want to pivot to CONUS. And she said, especially in the Western Pacific, that there's an ironclad connection between as the U.S. influence decreases, you, you will see regional rivalries increase. However, we can be there to be as a catalyst to help these people who would otherwise have a rivalry, rivalry work together. For instance, you know, we've seen, she didn't say this, but I'll use this as an example. We've seen the Japanese and the, the Filipinos and the Japanese and the Koreans do things in the last decade that you never would have thought would have taken place. And the fact that there is a, a false economy for uh, wanting to, to come home and expect that that will make things easier, because in many ways um, a strong forward presence is uh, a stabilizing force, if done correctly, as opposed to being a destabilizing force. I think people can argue both sides of the equation, but you know, you go, what do you think um, is the national mood? Is there the national mood from both the, um, the taxpayer and their representatives to be that forward deployed, um, or is, are we just going to keep stepping back a bit? I, I can see both sides of it. I, I really don't know which way the trend line's going. Yeah, I, I can tell you from a, living in a city which is uh, decidedly unfamiliar with naval operations um, that there is a huge and growing sea blindness, which we've discussed before, that people do not understand the Navy. They don't understand how the Navy operates. They don't understand the forward presence that a Hayes Gray Hall gives you if you put it on site uh, where there's an issue. And um, I think that that ignorance is what's going to bite us. Um, I thought that uh, Ms. Fox did a terrific job talking about um, the things that, that are becoming going to become a premium for us, including I think she, she was looking at submarines as a hugely uh, vital asset, uh, given the way the modern world is working. Um, but I'm not sure that, that people really, most people, I don't think they, I don't think they're against forward presence. I just don't think they understand it and why it's important. Uh, and I don't think the Navy, after 10 years of essentially two ground wars, I don't think the Navy's done a particularly good job of trying to tell its story um, about why it matters that we have these hugely flex flexible uh, airports at sea and uh, and all the rest of it. It's uh, I just think we we you know a lot of what's going to happen to the Navy uh, we've run ourselves by not telling our story very well. And I don't know. I, I have some theories. Uh, well, first of all, for those that that, that read my post over the uh, USNI blog about Christina Fox, I would love for her to have a couple of real strong EAs to do some of the grunt work so she could get out in front of some more audiences, preferably those without uniforms on, because she really is a, a strong public speaker. But I also had a sidebar with a, with a Serbian flag officer um, that um, I'll, I'll remain nameless, and I brought up something that um, I think really we need to have more of. We need to have the CNO out there uh, talking about naval issues, and we also need the vice CNO 
out there a lot talking about naval issues. And if I have one more person bring up the topic of the vice CNO, I want to talk about personalities and backgrounds, I want to throttle them. That's not what we need to be talking about and not what the vice CNO needs to be talking about. Um, uh, for instance, she did a great talk over at the Naval Historical Center concerning the War of 1812, and a couple people who were there said she did a great job. She'd do a great job there. She can do a great job anywhere. She needs to get out. She needs to get about. The CNO needs to get out and get about. Um, of course, you have to be invited to do it, but it shouldn't be too much of a stretch. Uh, and it would ni- be nice to see the Secretary of Navy out there as well to get out there, get the word out. Um, that would be the theoretical. But then I look back, you know, when, when have we had civilian and military leadership in the Navy to really go out there and tell the maritime story? Have we ever had, do we have a good template of that? And if not the Navy, um, you know, some of the other services, uh, or is there a lot of hesitancy to do that because you open yourself up to, to various problems? You know, what's holding us back from telling that story with the right people out front? Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I look at the Marines and think of how they've gotten their message across, um, and I think they do a magnificent job. I, you know, we need to, and I know we've talked to uh, Chinfo a number of times, a couple times, and um, you know, he, he's now moved on. I think he's going to move on to a different job. But, but uh, uh, you know, they, I think the, that the people at that level understand it, but it's the, uh, there are all these grassroots organizations uh, from the uh, Navy League to USNI to a bunch of other uh, groups that, that are not being uh, used properly to really work on this, on this type of issue. And I don't, I don't know, maybe not since Teddy Roosevelt, who may be the last guy who really pushed the, uh, pushed the envelope for the, for the Navy and the fleet. And, and it may be part of that. Um, and again, this, I, I think you because of our of our of our hobby here, perhaps we have a uh, um, a, a reference bias here. But there, part of it might also be that everybody wants to be joint, wants to have good sandbox skills. People don't want to go out there and you know hurt the Air Force's feelings or hurt the Army's feelings, or you know there might be a little bit of that too much. Um, I I think that's um, that's overrated, as we saw a few years back. When they were finding a new um, a new chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, some of the services are quite happy to do some nasty stuff in the background. Um, so it might not be too bad to get out there and talk. Because the when when Christine Fox, not Christina, uh, when she brought up the BRAC, the first thing that came to mind, well, two things came to mind about BRAC. One is when you do BRAC, you close military bases. And the last big BRAC we did after the Cold War, we pretty much evacuated New England and the Northeast. Um, We also shut down and gave away a lot of territory on the west coast of California, which uh, makes the the J-4 guys get twitchy when you look at uh, major conflict out west and access to to, um, ports, so to speak. But there's some false economy there going with BRAC because I think we have enough congressional districts where people not only have never served in the military, but they never engage on military issues, but they sure do vote on them. So I don't think that's really a great idea to try to get that type of perspective. We've talked a few times about it as well, about the problem in the in the in the Congress of getting the people with the right experience. Uh, so you, maybe you don't have to tell your story as much when you have you know, influencers and decision makers who already know the story. Uh, that's, uh, that's a challenge. Uh, I, I, so I'm kind of glad that a BRAC's not coming this way. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I mean, I don't know about the, <clears throat> the BRAC stuff. I do know that the Army seems to be... You, know, you can start picking on people, and that's the trouble. The minute you start saying the army's too large for a a force that we 
see future use for, but we really need an army, but it needs to be a different kind of army. Then you begin to raise all those issues. And uh, the other thing I thought was really interesting in the uh, in the conference, the 2014 conference, was the uh, the panel on the industrial base. Um, we don't think, just like most people don't think about logistics uh, in terms of our strategic uh, capabilities, uh, a lot of people don't think about the industrial base and its importance for our strategic capabilities. Uh, years ago, I took a, I was getting my master's degree, and one of our instructors was a, uh, a guy who worked for a federal agency whose job it was was to, to keep track of, you know, if we shut, if we if we do this sort of thing, does this cause the last shipyard capable of producing uh, this type of ship to to disappear? I mean, you know, it was it was interesting to me at the time. That was about a thousand years ago that there was an agency like that around. But uh, yeah. I thought that that was a really good panel and, and an important topic, uh, probably for a future discussion on our show. But uh, I would highly recommend people take a look at that at that uh, uh, YouTube video on that particular section of the conference because yeah that's it's not so much and and you know one one of the regular commenters um on all of our sites i think you know byron he's been working in the shipyard industry for decades is uh it's not only the industrial base that when you lose it uh you just can't say hey can we have that up can you can, can you open the doors and turn on the key and have that equipment work again because it's all sold off if you lose the people you lose the, the folks who know how to do the right weld correctly, so your Liberty ship doesn't crack into the first storm that it comes into, which happened to a couple, I think. Um, you have the people who uh, know how to to do it efficiently and effectively, so you don't have you know delays. You know that's a huge issue. And you know, talk about panels. Um, for a lot of these conferences, when you get near the end, and I, and I, this is right inside of your wheelhouse there, Eagle One, is uh, what I'm going to bring up here, is some of the panels towards the end can be kind of thinly attended, uh, regardless of what good, how good the topic is. So you can really tell what's, what's getting in people's mind when you're near an end panel discussion and the place is packed. <laughs> and, and, and they had the, the China panel was packed. And... An idea came up that I'll probably write on this week um, that really got my, my, my ears twitching uh, about what you can do in peace. Because a lot of people talk about you know war and the high-end conflict and whatever. But uh, we have to engage with China on a regular basis. And there are things that you can do in peace to both... Um, Encourage your allies who may be intimidated by their big neighbor nearby, but also ways you can help China from pushing envelopes so far that they've gone too far and bad things happen. And uh, one of the panel members um, was a JAG captain, Captain Stubelt, uh, who spoke near the end of the panel. If you just want to see what he's talking about, you can fast forward to when uh, he's like second from the and going from left to right at the table. But uh, what they were describing involving uh, not only uh, international tribunals, but treaties using uh, Association of Southeast Asian Nations, a rule-based program that I use this term, he didn't, um, almost was like offensive lawfare against China, which was great to hear because usually we're, we're reactionary when it comes to lawfare. And a recurring phrase that I'm going to do a little more research on, a rules-based approach to conflict resolution. And using that as a way to address China's aggression in the South China Sea. And I think A is an appropriate, uh, A in aggression is the correct term to use because that is was pretty darn aggressive. Uh, so uh, all in peacetime offensive lawfare against China. So putting on your admiralty law hat, their Eagle One. Uh, does that sound juicy, fun, and sexy for an attorney? And how much can we really do uh, to to apply pressure on China if we do that smarter? 
Well, I, I think it is juicy and it would be fun to be part of. I thought Admiral uh, Harris addressed that, too. He, he a couple of times, yeah. went out of his way to mention that uh, China's, the Aegis was part of it. Well, there was another claim about, you know, uh, coral rocks in the in the ocean. He made, he made two cracks about it, both of which he said, you know, they're acting unlawfully and without any... Uh, basis in law. So he's been talking, I think it was something like that. Anyway, he's been talking to his JAG officer about this stuff. And uh, uh, great possibility that that, uh, that is the way to go, you know, because the, the, the nice part about it is, um, is it gets it out in the open where uh, the world can see what's going on rather than just relying on news reports uh, released by China and the other interested parties there about uh, what's happening. So, you know, a, a nice uh, uh, effort to go offensive with lawfare, I think, is a perfect, uh, a perfect use. I think another thing that, that really makes it exciting about it is, is when done right and, and, and uh, Captain Belt isn't the only individual who uh, who brought this up. It's not really uh, – it's very diplomatic, for a lack of a better phrase. It's not poking China in the eye or kicking him in the shins. It's not going to um, – it's aggressive in a way to keep things at a low level – to, to put people, to put China on a footing where they don't go too far, where it's hard for them to back out without losing face, but um, everybody else has to react to it. Um, you know, I think that is what's so nice. And it also will encourage um, Japan, Korea, Vietnam, the Philippines, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia. I think I forget, somebody was talking about they just kicked Mal China, just kicked Malaysia in the, in the shins over something recently, and even Australia. That by by showing that you're willing to stand up to China as they look to what in their mind is to restore what used to be theirs. Uh, it wasn't talked about too much in the China panel, but um, yeah, that's one thing I have to keep reminding myself. Uh, is you know, we think of our history in a couple of hundred years and change. That's just a fraction of the Chinese history. And you, you just can't look back to 1949 as the template the Chinese are looking back. They're looking back, uh, you know, more than a thousand years. But to try to keep yeah, them contained. You've got to be careful with that, uh, looking back all that way. Because if, if you look back all that way and you let them get away with it in the South China Sea, say, uh, yeah. Then what's to stop them from, from claiming that Vietnam is theirs, that Thailand is theirs, that every well, maybe I think maybe Thailand was the one who didn't wasn't ever Chinese, but you could go a long Burma, way arguing. <laughs> yeah, you know they go a long way arguing that everything belongs to them. I mean all all your bases belong us kind of thing, you know. And and uh, <laughs> uh, I just I, I I'm just not sure you want to to go down that road, but. But let's take that as a, as, you know, people lose territory all the time. I mean, the, the Germans and the French have exchanged uh, sections of the, their border a number of times. The, uh, the Italians and the French, the Italians and the Austrian, I don't know, you can go on and on about who had what when. Uh, but, you know, uh, uh, you, you've got to draw a line in the sand someplace. The nice thing about the legal approach is, is that Vietnam, a small country, uh, or... Uh, the Philippines, a small, almost unarmed country, have as much sway in the courtroom as, as the big bully China. Uh, you know, you can hire, both sides can hire the best lawyers and let them duke it out uh, at minimal uh, cost in, in life and, uh, and property and all that stuff. Now, if the Chinese will play that way, that's great, but uh, we'll see. Always better to jaw-jaw than war-war. Speaking of jaw-jawing, I think we're already over time. Um, so uh, let's go ahead and wrap things up, Eagle One, uh, a quick hour again. And I'd encourage everybody to go over to the USNI uh, website and look up West 2014. Uh, the Institute has done a great job of capturing all these panels up on video. They have a YouTube channel with them. Uh, and there's just some, some great and I, I would say encouraging discussion for those that think that the American military, for example, is 
too misty-eyed and, and too kumbaya on China, I would invite you to uh, to go look at the China panel. <laughs> there are some very people who are, are very clear-eyed, very tough, very honest. It might make you a little bit uncomfortable, but you know sometimes uh, you're supposed to be uncomfortable because they're uncomfortable things. But um, unlike things in the past where it have been hard, if you weren't there to actually see what ideas are bouncing around people's head, uh, they've done a great job there to uh, to do. And uh, you know, speaking of great jobs, we'll be live again next week for everybody. And our guest will be uh, Seth Cropsey from uh, the Hudson Institute. Yeah, I, I thought that I, too, will recommend that people go, go look at those YouTube videos. Because if, if you want the uh, high-level uh, view of where things are, uh, no better way than to, to, to see what happens at those conferences like the one the USNI put on. Absolutely. You get to get to see what's in the head of uh, everybody from Admiral Harris to Christine Fox down to uh, a OS3 on the Benfold, who, by the way, she was very impressive on the panel on the uh, Athena project. Uh, you know, clone her. She'd be a good good take. But, hey, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you next week there, Eagle One. All right. And uh, I guess that means we're out of here. We're out of here. And uh, take care, everybody. Have a good spring. Enjoying thawing out. And we will see you next week for another live edition of Midraps. Cheers. here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.